This podcast is dedicated to the inspirational memory of Jeremy, Jez, Crooks, who worked with great drive, passion and tireless commitment to promote and develop the UK's mine energy resources, which have the potential to make a significant contribution to decarbonising heat for the UK. Jeremy's family have also asked for his team to be mentioned. They felt honoured to be part of Jez's team and privileged to work alongside such resilience and strength of character. His brilliance, his ability to engage and inspire so many, his consistent thoughtful nature and his welcome infamous and motivational doses of good humour, Jez was quite simply a good man, one of the best. They and so many partners and colleagues are determined to continue to deliver his important work as his lasting legacy. Jez will be sadly missed and long remembered. Hello and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the material cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Welcome to IOM3 Investigates. My guests today are the Coal Authority's Head of Innovation, Jeremy Crooks, and British Geological Survey geoscientist, Gareth Farr. And I'm Catherine Williams, Head of Content at IOM3. The guys have both been involved in a recent project to map the heat stored in British coal mines, providing the opportunity for more sustainable heating projects in coming years. Gentlemen, welcome to IOM3 Investigates. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. So, Gareth and Jeremy, can you tell me a little bit about your careers and how you actually came to be involved in this particular project? You go first, Jez. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, uh, originally I was in uh, civil engineering, uh, building roads, bridges, um, things of that nature. Um, left that and went to, and set up my own my own business which was uh, re- reasonably successful as an export business got caught in the the recession in the um, the early 90s uh, and then fell back into civil engineering uh, and then took a post in a local authority and worked my myself up the, the ladder until I was the head of environment responsible for over half of the staff and uh, did some very radical things changing services around taking them from low performing to a top quartile or, or best in country. Then I left there and joined the uh, coal authority to manage the mine water treatment schemes and there, there are some 76 of those across the country uh, and then stood there with my innovation at saying, why are we doing it like this when there are so many cleverer ways we could be doing things? And it turned out to be a silly thing to say because they then gave me a team and said, go off and do it. So for the last five years, that's what I've been doing, running an innovation team, uh, doing some very, very exciting things, uh, changing how, how we work. That's good to hear because sometimes you hear people say, we came up with a great idea and nobody listened mm. to us. Mm. So uh you know, actually, you've done pretty well there. 
And Gareth, how about you? Yeah, cheers, Catherine. Um, originally, I was working for Environment Agency Wales, as it was back in the day. Obviously, it's called Natural Resources Wales now. Um, and then I did a mixture of things in their groundwater and contaminated land team. I set up groundwater chemical monitoring networks across Wales for the Water Framework Directive and also got involved in a whole host of planning, um, licensing and other, other sort of activities. I also got quite heavily involved into wetland hydrology and assessing wetland sites against nutrient impacts. So it was quite a real big mixed bag. And then when it became time to move to a pastor's new, I really couldn't think of who would employ me to do similar, such a similar mixed bag. And then of course I stumbled across BGS and then I seem to have continued doing those things there for the last eight years. Um, but probably for the sort of last, uh, probably six or seven years, we've been tapping away at subsurface heat recovery not just in coal fields, but in urban areas and elsewhere. So that's where uh, me and Jez link up, really, and, and cross over and work together. Okay, so Jeremy, was this one of your innovative ideas to work together, or was it that there were existing links and you just took it from there? Not really, no. We, I think Gareth and I have kind of fell across each other and realised that actually we've both got um, quite a passion around... Uh, uh, removing the, the geothermal energy that sits within mines and that's led to us working cooperatively on a, on a number of projects now and um, heat from the the mine map has been kind of the first of those really to to be delivered um, but for the the innovation work that we've been doing the the mine energy wasn't really recognized as being such a a big opportunity as it's turned out to be it was an old series of uh, innovations we were looking at and we've we've done uh, the team that um, work alongside me, we've delivered lots of really big, big changes. Uh, and this was one of those things that's been a bit of a slow burner. But now it's um, possibly the biggest thing that we've done as a team and possibly as the, the, the organisation I work for, the Coal Authority. This is really seen as being a game changer on, on resilience and um, uh, sustainability. And uh, having the skills of um, BGS and... Um, and, and Gareth in particular has really made the, the geological unknowns that, that we have is making sense of those. It really is kind of a, um, a relationship made in heaven, Gareth. Oh, thanks, Jez. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. So what did the mapping actually involve? You're saying it turned out to be a far greater project than you'd expected it to be. So how did you approach it and what did you actually do? Yeah, so I think we realised fairly early on that there was no tangible map that people could get hold of to look at temperatures in coal fields. And as people sort of started to talk about the potential of taking heat or storing heat in coal fields, they were often saying, you know, well, where's the maps? Where's the maps? What does it look like? So we realised there was sort of, there was an obvious sort of a gap in the market, if you like, to produce something like that. So we sort of put our heads together and sort of figured out how we would do it. So it, it kind of works on two levels. One, it's a good engagement tool because people understand what temperature is and they understand where they live and they understand geography. And those maps are fairly straightforward 2D-ish maps. Mm. And then, of course, there was the real need to have the best available evidence in a mapping format so we could look for, you know, well, so it could be used when... Um, 
people need to do early stage feasibilities or for when people are trying to locate places they may put schemes and also for the regulatory regime how much temperature change would you allow well if you don't know a baseline then it's hard to work away from that so i had a couple of different aims with the mapping really the the coal fields uh, are under 25 percent of the population so a quarter of people in the uk uh, are living on on the coal fields and many of those have been disadvantaged by the closure of, of the coal mines and to find new ways of, of making a living and we could see at our mine water treatment schemes which we have uh, in england wales and, and scotland spread across the coal fields that we're pulling warm water to the surface and but what we didn't really have a picture of was was how much of it was was in the mines and uh, how did that vary according to to depth so the the study that we've done along with um, with Gareth is to to get an understanding of what those temperature variations are throughout the coal fields but particularly as you get into into deeper workings and correlating those with the historically what the temperatures were when the mine was dry and I think that's one of the exciting things that's really come out of this piece of work was what we can see is that the mines when they were being worked 100 120 odd years ago uh, where we've got records of temperatures from when they were dry so that this is the conditions the miners were working in we're finding that now they're flooded with water we're getting very similar temperatures and that's an indication that um, uh, that in 100 years from now 200 years 500 years from now we will probably still be getting those very warm temperatures in the mines so this is a a renewable energy source and these maps help us to get an understanding what those temperatures are going to be in the workings before we even need to to drill into them uh, which drilling into mine workings is expensive so uh, you do that hoping to to get water out this gives us before we even need to drill on a desktop an understanding of what the temperatures are likely to be which is which is very valuable going forwards so is that how you started you created sort of a theoretical model of what you believed the heat recovery might be and then you went and tested it by drilling well actually i'll tell you how it started i was on site in south wales um the coal authority had kindly allowed us to use one of their monitoring holes for a student project and whilst I was there the contractors to the coal authority had turned up to do their sort of geophysical monitoring uh, downhole geophysical tests and I was chatting with them because we were allowed closer than two meters in those days so we were sat, sat in the back of the van chatting and having a cup of tea and I, was, I said oh, do you do this at a lot of coal field sites they said yeah loads loads I said do you record temperature at all of them and they said yeah 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 and I thought oh my god there's a big mm. there's potentially a big big data set there that um you know wasn't ever the primary reason for the geophysical investigations but mm -hmm. we could grab hold of so coal authority funded that data to come from their consultants and then of course we still had lots of gaps so I looked for other third-party data. I begged the EA and NRW and any friends I could find. And then we went back. I delved back into the depths, you know, into the proper old leather-bound books we've got at BGS. And I found that, you know, though me and Jez were thinking about how warm are the coal fields now, you know, our predecessors had thought about this before. Mm -hmm. not, yeah. not, not, not to see how much heat they could take out, but to see how deep, deep they could send the, the miners before they mm -hmm. wilted and fell over. So... There was a lot of work done in the sort of late 1800s, early 1900s, looking at geothermal gradients and temperatures in coal fields. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you have like a, 
a data set there that's unrepeatable because it was done whilst the mines were operating. So there's a, an, a, as a lot of the listeners will know, there's very complex temperatures going on in operational mines, but as part of their work, uh, some of these people drilled holes, small boreholes into the side of workings and sealed them off so they could get rock temperatures away from all of the ventilation systems. Um, so we've got some fairly what we think, well, the best that we can get of actual rock temperatures uh, and adjusted rock temperatures in the mine. So we combined these all together, really, into a bit of a mixing pot. Um, and our maps came out the other end. That's fascinating. That's amazing. Mm. Although, obviously, yes, you know, the mine, mine owners were trying to see how far they could send the men down before people started falling over and dying. But there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was some, I mean, I think some of the miners were working in excruciating temperatures, you know. Um, I think I think the warmest mine we, we found, uh, I think it was around about 46 degrees, wasn't it, Gareth? So yeah, which would have been right. extremely difficult to, mm. to work in. Starting from the data, what aspects were each of you then involved in? going forward um how how did each of you work separately and how did you work together on this we had a team of people from bgs and myself uh john busby and, uh, and then a team of people from coal authority so we sort of di divvied out the roles in effect that the coal authority did a lot of the data provision and of course they'd collected a lot of the raw data and they could help put things into context for us um and then they allowed John Busby and myself some time to go and sort of get into the nitty gritty of the numbers and calculate geothermal gradients for all the coal fields. We also had to do quite a bit of editing it. It wasn't as straightforward as just let's here's the data and let's ramp up some geothermal gradients. In the sort of Q&A we found some sites that sort of looked weird and really weren't behaving as you'd imagine. So we sort of did a bit of filtering out first until we had the sort of sites where we thought well this is weird there's some gradients here that look back to front or there's some that are changing a lot and of course those were the sites we found out when we chatted with the coal authority those were the sites that were being actively pumped i mean what we've clearly shown in there as well is that the the action of pumping or rapidly rising groundwater can sort of alter the the measured geothermal gradient mm -hmm. so there could be pros and cons to that when you come to apply it you know so you might bring the warm water up to the surface but with that you may also bring up the less desirable mine water chemistry so so you know we did a bit of learning on the dynamics of these systems as well that's that's also made us probably rethink how we thought we'd be taking the the eat out of the mine as well so the obvious way is to drill into the deeper workings bring the warmer water to surface take the heat out which you then use for heating homes and businesses and then put the cooler water back into the mine but mm -hmm. at a, at a, on into a shallower seam uh, and then we'd do a review of the mine workings to understand how that water will behave within the mine system so that by the time that you've re-injected it it's got that water molecule has gone back to the point of abstraction it's been mm -hmm. reheated again by these geothermal processes but what it's made us realize is it might be that uh, on some of our schemes we reverse that um, okay. uh, in, that f in fact we we take the the cooler water near to the surface because you can still have a commercially viable heat network scheme even with temperatures that are close to the surface, but re-injecting that into, into deeper seams. And that way, we won't have this problem of bringing up some of the um, 
perhaps perhaps the more contaminated waters that you tend mm -hmm. to get in, in in the deeper working so quite often i think you you enter into these things thinking one thing and, and actually it can completely change your your perceptions another one of the the difficulties that that we had along the way because as, as a project it probably seemed quite simple at first oh this will be easy to do and these things never are and uh, they always become far more complex as um, our internal systems that for us to to generate the the cuts through the earth at 100 meters which sits in this uh, uh, this mapping that's an artificial cut and, and actually it became quite problematical for us to be able to do that our internal modelers, particularly Helen Whitley, uh, that was quite challenging. Uh, and again, that's a fine way to do that. So, and I think um, all the way through this project, both on BGS's side and the coal authorities, it's meant we've had to um, break new ground, so to speak, which has made the project even more interesting. So what sort of challenges did you find with this? And apart from sort of the potentially reversing the flow of water in some places, what what did surprise you and what did present challenges for you? I think what surprised us, going from the top, it's, it's a good thing for government bodies to work together. And we've done a lot of work on making that happen as well. So I think I was pleasantly surprised that we've done this harmoniously together. And of course, for the UK taxpayer or external people, you know, it looks good that we're sharing knowledge that we have that clearly overlaps and we're getting more bang for the buck, ultimately, hopefully, for for UK government. So that was a pleasant surprise. I think a scientific surprise was perhaps that we did see quite a bit of variation across the British coal fields in terms of temperature gradients. Mm -hmm. uh, so they weren't all exactly the same. Uh, we still that still poses lots of questions. Of course, no good science project would end without saying we have lots more questions to answer. Is it surrounding geology? Is it density of population? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of factors, and we'll probably end up throwing them all into a pot and then seeing which ones are most dominant. But for sure, depth has to be at the top somewhere. The types of surrounding rocks and their uh, thermal properties. The residence time of the mine water in a system. So, you know, you're from, you're from Wales, you'll know there's probably some quick flashy systems in some of the coal fields with mm -hmm. big mine water adits splashing out after heavy rainfall. But then you could have some deep, more confined ones. So maybe residence time, maybe the geochemistry of, of the mine water and the microbiology. Mm -hmm of it and other sort of exothermic reactions may contribute. Mm -hmm. So I think there could be an interesting mixture there. And um, of course we need to understand all of those because if we're going to start tinkering around heating and cooling them, we might need to be confident that we know what's going to happen when we start <laughs> changing them. I think it's, it's um, opened up as many questions as we, we've answered. And uh, I think Gareth and I are kind of particularly excited about perhaps what the, the future holds in how we make use of this data that, that we mm -hmm. now have. So we, we have mines where the, the water is re rel relatively close in quality to, to drinking water. And then we've got others that are uh, hypersaline. And 
does the behavior of heat within those those systems uh, change does does the uh, the migration of, of heat and water and do do you get lamination effects within those systems i think the data set is going to be really interesting to explore to see what that can give to us and one of the things that we we noticed in particular we have a mine shaft um in the northeast of england where we we have a treatment scheme we're taking water out of that and that mine shaft has got a number of insects along its way um mm -hmm. and we we're pulling out water there at a steady uh, 18 to 20 20 degrees um and it's pulling it up from the from the bottom of the mine shaft whereas perhaps you would have thought the the feedings from the the different insects would would kind of have a dilution effect so that some interesting hydrological processes that that uh, are taking place there as well so um i think we've we've scratched the surface haven't we gareth of um the potential of what we can we can get out of this data that has a real purpose as well so there's a value to come out of all of this back to the uk this is enormous geothermal um almost like a thermal battery that sits below ground ready to harvest. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a lovely sort of almost circular economy story where mm. we're moving from an energy source that, that sort of drove Britain century, two centuries ago, um, through a fallow period where the mine shut and sort of everybody, as you said, referred to was sort of slightly areas became deprived areas felt they'd slightly been abandoned and now we're potentially moving to the next stage where we're talking about new energy source jobs and potentially real cost savings for people as well long term um, so it's, it's a really exciting discovery and something that that could really benefit people living close to the coal mines there's, there's actually something that's quite poetic about this that the um, the industrial revolution was powered by by coal um, that created the the very large urban areas and nine out of ten of the largest urban areas in in the country are, are either on the coal foods or, or adjacent to them it's it's only uh, london that that isn't because they were built by coal creating those industries and then that employment and then with the um with the demise of of coal that's that's left those communities uh in uh, more difficult circumstances and the coalfield communities have a uh, a lower lifespan than the, the, the average for the for the country there's a lesser uh, employment opportunity and a health health gap there but what was done was with all that mining they created an asset that sits below ground with this huge labyrinth of uh, roadways connecting to fractured rock and galleries that that now they're becoming flooded and contain this geothermal energy and in the right circumstances that that can be competitive against gas for heating but with none of the the car the carbon footprint so our first scheme which will be the the cm garden village scheme up in in county durham heating 1500 homes uh, we'll have a carbon footprint there that's um, 90% less than as if it was a gas boiler system with none of the air pollutants. Uh, if we can also use renewables to power the the, uh, the heat pumps, which use use electricity, then we, we will virtually reach a zero carbon, infinitely sustainable energy source that's, that's local. Uh, so the benefits back to the coalfield communities that have been disadvantaged by the closure of mines, actually, those mines now that have been closed could actually be a, a, um, a commercial bonus for them for 
for, for centuries to come. Absolutely. And, and the sort of the community buy-in is is really important. Mm. So, you know, I'm never allowed to say the F word, but we all know what it is. And if you're out on site, if you're out on site mm. drilling a borehole, someone will always ask you, is it for that process? Of course, you'll say no, but you see how important that is and how they perceive sort of the subsurface. But having spent a couple of weeks uh, on a drilling site in the South Wales Valleys for project run by Bridge End Council, you know, everyone walking past wanted to know. When you explain the story, a lot of the old boys there said, oh, I work down there. Yeah, yeah, the main roadway's going this way. Oh, you're probably about above it. And every day they'd chat to you and they were really, really engaged with it because they understood it in fact they arguably understood it better than us um mm -hmm. but you know you you do have that connection and once you've got that that's that's a big hurdle to yeah. overcome yeah i think also we've got a real advantage in the uk that from 1874 there was a requirement for all mines uh sorry 1872 for all mines when they closed to lodge a uh, abandonment plan so uh, the coal authority uh uh, as that archive, which we've digitised, but in effect, we've, we know exactly where the mines are and what depths they were and where the roadways are. And then having um, uh, BGS and their understanding of the, of the subsurface geology, the UK is really in a good position because we understand the, what, what's underneath it. When you go across uh, particularly continental Europe, mm -hmm. those, those archives didn't exist and that information isn't in the, in the state that, that it is. So the UK has got a real advantage here. Across the, across the world, there are about 30 mine energy schemes. At the moment, we've got a pipeline of over 30 schemes in the UK. So if they all come to fruition and, we, and new schemes are coming up uh, virtually on a, on a weekly basis, it could be that the UK has far more mine energy schemes than anywhere else, which then creates a whole new industry. It creates employment that's attached to that. And then also those skills that we can, mm -hmm. we can export across the world. So, and obviously a lot of that is around the, the subsurface and understanding and, and interpolating that. So I think this is very exciting times, uh, especially when you consider sort of COVID and, um, and, and, and Brexit and, and, and where the UK is. We've got a, an all new renewable industry there that the UK is probably best place in the world to actually do something that's of a spectacular spectacular size in exploring so we've talked about sort of the fact that you were really seeing community buy-in when they were seeing you on site you have made all the data publicly available so contractors and so on can take a look what else do we need coming in from government or from councils and so on in terms of support to make this really happen there's a, there's a lot of support already in place so uh, the government created a a fund the uh, heat network investment program which was 230 million pounds uh, for heat networks uh, that uh, are sustainable so uh, a number of our uh, mine energy schemes are being successful in securing uh, money from that that's that finishes in 2022, but that will be replaced by the Green Heat Investment Fund, which will focus on uh, sustainable energy sources, which geothermal elements like, like the mines really sits into, and that's 270 million pounds there. And there are uh, a number of departments within government, such as uh, the Heat uh, Network Development Unit, uh, that are really uh, assisting 
um, BGS and the coal authority and local authorities um, in advancing these schemes. And uh, quite interestingly, there's there's a there's a white paper report that's about to, that will be coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, it's been run by the Northeast LEP. And they interviewed over 50 different uh, people from different organizations. And it's interesting that what they've said there is that uh, when they're working with those consultants, in particular, been working with local authorities, have found that they are they get director uh, level support for the mine energy schemes that they don't on other uh, energy sources for heat networks. And that they're finding that the local communities are extremely supportive of the schemes and, and obviously that's really important because it's art it's arts and minds uh, but that probably shows you that the the local communities even even the younger people mm-hmm. have got that connection to the minds that their parents or their grandparents have, have worked down the mines uh, and we also have the benefit that uh, there is always a counselor that was a miner as well <laughs> so <laughs> i think that's it you grow up with the family stories and um mm. there's there's some sort of connection there still so we're taking it forward into the future how are you both going to be involved in this and how are you driving it forward yeah so i think you know i mentioned we've got plenty of other questions the temperature maps are if you like just the the sort of the first visual mapping tool so we've got lots of other things we need to add so when you're designing sites you might need to know depth to mine water and other types of drilling conditions so i'm sure there'll be lots more other things like that in the pipeline um and yeah we'll keep pushing forward we've got searching for funding as you know we have to do because we're sort of part of NERC UKRI and building partnerships you know that's like mine and Jez's partnership and BGS Coal Authority but as well with a lot of research institutes uh universities academics you know there's a huge wealth of knowledge in there across the UK so building up a critical mass of people we, we have a um so the coal authority has created a an R&D program that will run over the next next three years part of the battle is getting the the funding in place to mm-hmm. uh, to take that forward but we've already started on some of those projects and some of those uh sit with um with bgs uh, uh because we see them as being the experts in many elements of the subsurface but what we're looking to do is to create a software model that will predict the behavior of uh, any any mine in the uk and because the mines will vary quite significantly um, in uh, the mining techniques that were performed and and the, and the state of the mine and whether or not it's as connectivity into other workings uh, mm-hmm. or whether or not they're standalone mines and what we're looking to do is to to create a, a software model that will uh, interpret interpolate how the mine will behave when you're abstracting and re-injecting waters into the into that mine the things we need to understand some fundamental things like um if you've got a flooded mine and there is a it is static that the water within it isn't moving does that mean that it starts to limit the amount of heat that you can pull out of that that mine from any one point uh and if there's water flowing through the system does that mean you've constantly got heat coming to so we look we're looking to get an understanding of that uh, and bgs are looking to as part of that that project to look at where does the heat come from what are the what are those uh, subsurface processes that are, are taking place that creates that heat because they're all necessary for us to understand how to how to model the mines and then we've got a, an old series of questions that will come come after that i think what is what is really interesting is that I think 
this this has now become something that of very high attention sort of within within government and local authorities and and consultants and and I, and I think it's almost like why haven't we done this before uh you know it's always been sitting there uh, and of course the answer to that is climate change um that now it's been recognized we need to decarbonize uh, and and I think that will be the the main catalyst or it, it, it already is the catalyst is already applied to for for people to take the, this fantastic um resource that's sitting below us uh seriously in terms of the wider mine landscape and potentially quarrying landscape and i know jeremy this possibly isn't one for you because you're a coal man but <laughs> have we've seen from the mines in cornwall where they're getting lithium brines out and so on are you looking at other types of mine or quarries to see whether there are potentially other minerals that could be extracted and the water used in another way as well as providing the heat? Uh, personally, um, not, but I do think some colleagues at BGS are probably involved in some of those lithium type projects. Um, I, can't, I can't speak for all of the, all 400 staff, but I'm sure someone is. Um, but you're right. And I, and I think actually even in, and I did see, you know, even the Coal Authority had some really great stuff last week where they'd use some of the mine ochre from one of the treatment schemes mm -hmm. uh, with some artists. And I think was it UCL or one of the colleges in London yep. and created some really sort of mm. bespoke paint. And I thought, you know, this is, so that's mm. sort of recovering. It's a novel method to recover pigments from mine workings that that's actually been a really interesting area for us so uh the the ferric the ferric oxide droxide this this orange rust that drops out of our mine water treatment schemes and this is the reason we have mine water treatment schemes in the main is because the uh, uh the iron that that's gone into solution within the mm -hmm. mine uh, when it breaks to surface uh will drop out and it, it acts as a sludge and smothers the the river beds and then that kills mm -hmm. the invertebrates that cascades through the life chain so so we build these mine water treatment schemes and this ochre drops out uh and that costs us around about a million pounds a year to take that out of our lagoons and send that to landfill uh, and it was considered a waste and we no longer consider it a waste it's it's an asset we've been very successful in finding new products that we can make out of this so the the paints that uh, that gareth was just talking about is, is quite interesting but we recently won award uh, two awards from the brownfield uh, briefing awards for using our our ochre in a, a land remediation scheme where our associates there uh, mixed it into the soil and it immobilized uh, arsenic contamination so rather than that land being sent off to for disposal elsewhere or for treatment it could stay in situ mm -hmm. uh, and that's because the very oxyhydroxide particles that drop out in our schemes are very unusual they're uh, they're very small particle size nanoparticle size around about 200 mm -hmm. microns and it means they have a very large surface area and they resorb or lock to the surface a whole series of nasty pollutants, so nickel, lead, cadmium, arsenic, locks them to the surface, but then it will very, very slowly release them. And what it means that the, the Merseylink uh, scheme that we put into, it's, it's locked the arsenic in place, but over a very long period of time, probably 100 years or more, it will very slowly release that at a rate that it will not cause a pollution event. So in effect, we've cleaned a very, very nasty pollutant in place. And then we've got a, a number of other products that we're looking to make out of this ochre. 
which is all of the iron oxides are, are imported from abroad. There's very little that's actually made in the UK. So actually mm -hmm. we've got something here that used to go to landfill that actually now we're finding products for that will prevent us um, or reduce the amount of these that are imported into the UK. And again, it fits into creating jobs and circular economy and, and turning wastes into, into products. So uh, uh, again, I've been very proud that the team that I've got have been very, very successful in, uh, in delivering that. Question is, Jez, will you be painting your lounge in the Six Bells Ochre? <laughs> very, very likely. There's another five to come after that as well. So, oh, well, there you uh, go. You can yeah, do your uh, kitchen and your bedrooms then. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing is water. Part of my job was to find a way of uh, making my water treatment schemes that we operate so we could build more, reduce the costs, but get to a mm -hmm. point where uh, we no longer required government funding for them and we could build a lot more of them. One of the things we were looking at was there can we sell some of our water that's always been a challenge because unfortunately wherever you have coal fields there seems to be an awful lot of water but that all changes in 2034 there will be insufficient water supply in the UK and there are some estimates that it might be before then and we have a vast amount of water our treatment schemes we're treating 122 billion litres of water every year and 72 percent of that water could be used into either industrial or agriculture and some of that into into drinking water processes so it's very likely that um, in a decade's time uh, the water that sits within mines will actually be seen as a, a very very important asset for for the UK and some of our mine water treatment schemes we are actually protecting underground aquifers so mm -hmm. we're we're intervening the rising mine water in the mine before it hits the aquifer because it would poison the aquifer and that's mm -hmm. kind of a, a one of the essential parts of um, the coal authority's uh, responsibilities. It sounds to me like you are doing a huge amount of work on sustainability and on future-proofing Britain, mm. and these are resources that a lot of people haven't thought about previously. So it's been really interesting to hear about it. Thank you. Um, so guys, is there anything I should have asked you about the project and completely failed to is there anything you'd like to to tell our listeners one thing for me i think which is particularly exciting is that the underground mining infrastructure was was seen as a liability so it we have a value on that which is 2.4 billion pounds so that's the liability to to uk government and we don't see it as that as anymore we, we see this as part of being uk's resilience Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is actually an asset of strategic importance uh, that has really been overlooked uh, until now. And I think in particular, the, the mine energy work uh, that we're, we're doing and we're very heavily involved with, with, with BGS is, is a bit of a game changer because this, we could be providing heat to houses, which is 44% of energy use in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, into the coal fields that's sustainable, renewable, uh, if the local authorities are operating those energy schemes, it means every pound that's spent by a resident on their heating goes back into the local economy. And this could be an attractant then to businesses that want a low cost, low carbon energy source. And, uh, and I think there's a, there's a real opportunity here that this will mm -hmm. change the fortunes of the of the coal fields and that's something particularly at the coal authority we're we're very minded about that um mm -hmm. uh it's not just about looking after this the liability and the uh, the, the difficulties that through things like um collapses into workings and things that at surface this is actually something that could make a difference real difference to people uh mm -hmm. and we're thinking or i'm particularly kind of believe that in 10 15 years time um 
investors will be looking at the coal fields first because they know that's where they'll be able to find these water resilience, energy resilience. Uh, and they will also be able to say our energy costs, we know what they're going to be next year or in two, three years time. Because the beauty of the mines is the water temperatures are stable. And it means that that translates into the costs of these schemes are forecastable. Uh, and mm-hmm. you're not affected by whether or not um, there's shortages of gas in the, the supply or move to meth to hydrogen or, or, mm-hmm. or things of that nature. So these are exciting times ahead for the uh, for the, the mines. Fantastic. And Garris? Well, I can't really beat that. That's a great summary, <laughs> Jez. So other than saying, you know, we're looking forward to working together in the future and, of course, with the wider mine water energy research base across well, globally. So it's a good team effort. You know, it's what gets us out of bed in the morning, really, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Excellent. It's been a joy talking to you. And I have found it fascinating. And, you know, it does. It brings back that sense of affection mm. for the mines. And thank you. So I would like to thank Gareth Farr from BGS and Jeremy Crooks from the Coal Authority. Um, The study is publicly available if you want to go and take a look. And we look out to hearing what you're up to in the future. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, Please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.